Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Good morning, rest church. Man, I want to I share some news with you. Um, we, have, we got a ton of people out sick this week, but um, also I want to share with you some, some good news along with that bad news. Uh, the good news is this, man. Uh, I got a text just a few minutes back from Metro Campus. And we've been praying that God would take some of those people that have been coming into Metro and that have not been coming back, that God would begin to foster a sense of community at the Metro campus. Because in case you don't know, it's like a whole bunch of people who have left this campus to go over there to start that campus. And it's like, you know, hey, here's that one new person. And we're all like, hi! You know, you know, so it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Um, um, but just got a text, man. That, that we had a, a big group of return visitors this week at Metro. Um, yeah, so, you know, one thing that we've been cautioning leaders and folks who from this campus that go over to that campus to help support and to serve from time to time is that we are in planting season and not in harvest season. So when you go there to serve, don't expect to show up, you know, like it was on Baptism Sunday here a few months, like four weeks ago. We had over 400 people in this room celebrating baptism. It won't be like that for a while. It took us eight years to get to where we could be here today, where we could plant our own church elsewhere. Just remember, we're in planting season, not in harvest season. So God calls us sometimes to plant, and God calls us sometimes to reap, to sow, so to just be encouraged by God doing a work over there and God continuing to do a work here. Amen? So when, when you think of images or stories of crazy love, what, what do you think about? Like what, what are some of the things, the images that come to your mind? When you think of crazy love, maybe let's just take it outside of the scriptures for a moment. Things that maybe you, you think about, um, um, pictures of crazy love. Maybe you think of Jack and Rose, right? Them shivering and, and, and Jack's self-sacrifice and Rose's selfishness, right? right? Can we all agree the door was big enough for two people? Right, right. I mean, I mean, my goodness, my goodness, people. Or, or maybe you think about um, um, John Lennon being willing to break up, quite possibly, 
the most popular band of all time for Yoko Ono. Right? I mean, he, he left the, the palaces of the people chanting the Beatles' names all for love. He gave it all up for love. Or maybe, maybe you're a, a, a young kid who, who, at heart, and you think about love. And when you think about crazy love, you think of um, uh, the spaghetti scene in The Lady and the Tramp. Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's you. You're like, maybe, maybe you think of love in that way. Today we come to this beautiful intersection in, the, in Romans where we see the fullest demonstration of God's love for us. As we look at the text, it becomes clear how not just that, that, that God says he loves us, but he demonstrates his love in spite of us. He demonstrates his love in spite of us. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to open your scriptures to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to be reading verses, I mean, Romans chapter, yeah, yeah. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. So I just want to point out to the deacons that this thing's going to drive me crazy. Like if we had a drill, I would like start drilling right now. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Let's pray, church. Father, Lord, we come to you. We ask for your provision. We ask for, for your nourishment. God, we give you permission to reprove, to rebuke, to correct us, to sift us, God. That we might have a yearning deep inside of us that compels us, that moves us closer to you, God. God, give me the strength, give me the, the, the manner. God, give me whatever is necessary to stir the heart of both the saint and the sinner. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for the, fast, the last few weeks in chapter 5, we've been discussing what we have labeled as our benefit package. Or the package that comes to us as a result of salvation. And kind of some of the things that we've been wrestling with, as we look at verse 1, we get peace with God. Our sin is dead. And peace, the most correct understanding of that word, shalom, means wholeness. It's not the absence of conflict, but is the wholeness. And so what we see is that Christ has taken our sin, he has given us his righteousness, and now we are made whole. Imagine a fence that's missing a block or it's missing a brick, and that brick has now been inserted in that missing spot, and it is whole. In the benefits package with Christ, when we receive Christ, when we receive salvation, we are made whole. Whole. We are made righteous in his sight. Amen? I'm going to need you people to wake up. Amen? All right. We have access, as verse 2 says, we have open, obtained access to God the Father. As we see in the Old Testament, Sinai covenant, in the Old Covenant, we are restricted from our access 
to God the Father. In fact, what we see is under David, we have the, the, the tent of meeting. The folks are able to come and they're able to directly see the Ark of the Covenant. They're able to worship there. But then as we move into the temple period, we establish the Holy of Holies. We are separated, and especially us Gentiles, we are separated from the manifestation presence of God on earth. And there on the cross, Jesus tears the, te- the, veil, the veil and creates a way, a rite of passage for us to get directly to God the Father. Through Jesus' blood, when we plead the blood, we come on behalf of his blood and we have direct access to God the Father. Amen? All right, you're picking up steam. You're picking up steam. And then verses 3 through 5, we get this really weird thing. And both John and A.B. both wrestled with this two weeks in a row. This kind of, we rejoice in our suffering. Right? We we all were like, yay, that's me. I love to rejoice in my suffering. And and, and like the clip we saw last week, when we say suffering, we don't mean you went through the Starbucks line and and you ordered a a flat white and you got a double venti espresso. Like that's not what suffering is in the scriptures, right? What we see is that in this suffering, our character is defined and our hope is aligned. It gives us a single-mindedness or a direct focus. See, suffering allows us to, to quiet our minds somehow, some way. It always seems to do this to where we point, we align our thoughts, we align our actions, we align our ethos directly with that of Christ, right? Have you ever heard the expression, you don't walk a straighter line than when you have pressure applied? Right? What we find in seasons of life, imagine like you have two heavy buckets on your shoulders. You tend to walk a straighter line than that of when you are light. Sometimes suffering aligns our single-minded focus and it aligns us with the hope of the earth, which is Christ Jesus. So we come to our text today. Verse 6. We're going to spend a lot of time, we're going to unpack out some of this here in verse 6. We see the first thing I want to point out for while we were still weak. While we were still weak. What is Paul pointing at? Paul is pointing towards our depravity. What, what is depravity? It is our hopeless separation from God. We are born depraved. We are born with a cursed lust for the things that are opposed to the nature of God. Whether you believe it or not, that's irrelevant. But the truth is, you were born a sinner. Your kids, they're little filthy sinners. And, and I say this every time. You guys have probably heard me say it a million times over the eight years that I've had the joy of pastoring you. If you don't believe me, If you don't believe me, we will gladly give you a teal shirt. Right, Maggie? We will gladly give you a teal shirt. Let you walk to the other side of this wall and experience depravity firsthand. You will walk into that corner room with kids who will still straight up snatch, slap, and kick for a goldfish. Now, we don't serve goldfish because we, we don't want we don't, we don't to have allergies and all that. But I'm just saying, they'll do it. If there was a goldfish laying in that floor, they would be like diving onto a landmine. I mean, that, that's exactly the picture. We are depraved. We are 
born hopelessly separated from God. We have a lust, a desire to do the things that are opposed to God. The idea here that Paul is getting at when he says, while we were still weak, is that we have been plunged so deeply in sin that we don't have the moral capacity to incline ourselves in any way to the things of God. If God, I want you to think about this, if God looked at us in his mercy and his grace and was to was to offer complete forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ, but no work in our heart, but to do nothing. The Holy Spirit does not draw us. The Holy Spirit does not um, compel us to repentance. We would say no. We would say no. Absent of the Holy Spirit's draw, we are dead in our sins. We are incapable of saying, yes, God, I submit to you. Yes, God, I will bow, I will bow my life before you. We are incapable because we love ourselves and we love to do the things that are opposed from the will of God. We don't simply, um, we do not have the moral capacity. We don't have the power to choose what we want in this particular circumstance. All other places, man, we're, we're free to choose on our own. But when it comes for some reason to, to choosing God, we need, we must have the Holy Spirit's pulling, the Holy Spirit's conviction. We must have our eyes like scales open before us to hear His good news. While we were still weak, while we were still weak, any desire that wells us up inside of us or draws us to God is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is his conviction that stirs us in our hearts. And I want to I want to paint a picture. I want you to understand because maybe maybe you're, you're struggling to understand. I want to give you the clearest picture that I can. Your sin as a metaphor is as if you are hanging or all of us are hanging off the edge of a cliff. And it's not just us that's hanging off the edge of a cliff, but it is a skeleton. A skeleton that's just so happened to be propped on the ledge of that cliff. Because the reality is, it isn't that you're obese with your sin. It isn't that you're, that you're so large that you are incapable of raising yourself. But the reality is, is that you are dead. There's not a heart beating inside of you. There is not muscle, there is not ligament, there is no way whatsoever that you can pull yourself off of, off of that cliff, over the ledge, into the promised land that is Christ Jesus. You are dead in your trespasses. You are dead in your sin. You are incapable. You are totally depraved. For while we were still weak, at the right the right time. God did not wait to send Jesus to earth. He didn't wait for humanity to exercise our wills, incline ourselves to him, repent of our sins, or get ourselves in such a state that would be appropriate to provide atonement for us. He didn't wait for us. He didn't wait for Caesar Augustus, Russ, to say, hey, let, let's, let's, let's start to worship Jesus. 
He didn't wait for the Mayans to begin to think of Jesus. No, he didn't wait for all of creation to align themselves with him. No, while we were still in this state, while we were still weak, which Paul later says in Ephesians, it describes our spiritual death, while we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, Christ died. That is the win with respect to our human condition. Now concerning the win of the historical win, Luke tells us in chapter 2, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. It was an integral part of the, Christian, uh, the Christmas narrative in Luke. But the point here that Luke is trying to say is it is a real person at a real time at a real intersection in history. It was purposely put throughout the whole Old Testament in the activity of God ministering to his people in creating a nation to and for himself out of, out of Israel in giving them the law of the prophets in ministering to them in their entire sojourning. God was, re, uh, was ripening history for the moment at which Christ would appear. So you see, God the Father has been setting the stage for thousands of years, ready and waiting for the appropriate and at the right time for Jesus to come. He is ripening history for at the right time for Jesus to come. When we read the gospel narratives about the death of Christ, we find all kinds of political conspiracies going on behind the scenes. We find Caiaphas the high priest, Pilate, Herod, all giving their advice. The, the soldiers we see, they, even them, they begin to conspire. They're casting lots for his clothes. The Sanhedrin, the, the leaders of all of Israel, they get involved. They, they pay money to Judas to make sure that all is in place in the arrest of Jesus. God knew from the foundation of the world that this was the day because he had ordained it. He had planned it. He had the foresight, the foreknowledge to know when it would happen. All things came together in concurrence of divine providence so that on this specific day, Christ would die. He died, church, at the right time. See, some would have us to think, Christ is somehow, or, or God the Father is somehow in heaven, and, he, and he's in the control room, and he's like, what do we do now? What do we do now? He's never once been panicked. His providence is perfect. His understanding is undefeated. Even when Adam and Eve were in the garden, when Eve saw the fruit, and saw that it was good for eating. When, when, she, when she was lured by her self-desire to make herself knowledgeable like God. She chose herself over God and she partook and then she said to her husband, hey, you should have some as well. God was not scrambling in heaven. 
God wasn't saying, oh my gosh, my my perfect creation, what will we do? No, the scriptures reveal to us that Jesus, from the foundations, even before creation began, would be set forth to die on the cross at the right time, at the right intersection. When we start to think about the Roman infrastructure, And how the Roman infrastructure played as the tinderbox that would allow the gospel to flourish and to move throughout the known world. The roads that the Romans built were built so that the gospel could spread. The the resources that the Romans had established were a perfect catalyst for at the right time for the gospel to flourish. And what do we know? What do the scriptures teach us? Where there is suffering, he will bring hope. And that persecution under emperors like Nero, who wanted to crush the church, served as a catalyst to send forth the disciples into what was past the known world, that the gospel would penetrate pagan hearts and would illuminate a whole world on fire for Jesus. And so I say to you, it was at the right time time for while we were weak at the right time what happened church Christ died for the ungodly Christ died for the ungodly it was for sinners that Christ died for men who were neither righteous nor good The contrast between the tremendous worth of the life laid down and the unworthiness of those who would stand to benefit from it cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated. Um, Douglas Moo, one of my favorite theologians to read, he said this on this topic. Christ, sent by God, died. Not for the righteous people or for the good people but for rebellious and undeserving people. Christ came at the right time and died for people who did not deserve it. If I was to take a poll in this room and ask who deserves the blood of Christ, there should not be one single hand ever raised. Because none of us deserve the death, the sacrifice that he paid on the cross for us. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. That, in light of everything we've read in chapter four and five, as we've wrestled with this idea of righteousness, as we've wrestled with justification, which means just as if I've never sinned, as, as, we, as we come to terms with those heavy, weighty theological terms, this particular verse can be hard to understand in the ESV. It can be hard to wrestle with. And so this morning, I want to read to you um, this exact same verse from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. There's lots of thoughts in the, what Paul's saying here in the Greek. I, I've, I've read folks say, did, did 
um, Tactus write the wrong statement down? Did Paul mean to use the right words that he did here? Because in the, in, in the English Standard Version or in the Greek, it says, hey, here's this righteous person. Nobody might not, no one would die for that person, but here's this good person. They would even die for them. In any case, all agree kind of at the heart of the matter of the translation. The, the righteous person is someone whose life is commendable when it comes to following the scriptures. They're a good person. But the good person that Paul calls out and he brings to the forefront is also a righteous person. They're also redeemed by the blood. But they're well respected in the fact that their righteousness is not cold and callous. I mean, have you ever met somebody who, man, they, they love Jesus. And they're not, they're not rude, they're not ugly, but they're not warm. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, maybe that was your grandma. Maybe, maybe, was, maybe that's your mother-in-law. I don't know. I mean, they, they, they love Jesus, but they don't scream, hey, come over for a cup of tea, right? And I believe what Paul is getting at is that this particular person that is good, not just righteous, because they are also righteous, but their particular walk is, is at full maturity, what do I mean by full maturity? If we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, they are exhibiting all of these in their life. Those types of people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit are like honey. They draw you to them. You want to be in their presence. They're jovial. They're, they're full of wisdom. And it's like every time you walk out of spending time with them, you're like, man, I could spend hours upon hours upon hours with them. My grandfather was like that. You go over to my grandfather's house. Yeah, my grandfather and I, we like to eat watermelon together. We like to drink we like to kill Dr. Peppers, all 23 flavors. I mean, we're all about that. But man, he is such a cool dude to be with. I mean, today, he's like, he's, he's 92 and he won't stop getting on a ladder. You know, he's, he's that kind of guy. He's the kind of person you want to hang out with. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying that, hey, let's, let's look at it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You wouldn't volunteer. Hey, I volunteer as tribute for this guy. But for the, for the person who has that magnetic draw about them, he says, hey, one person would dare to even die. He, he's essentially saying there's a small, little chance for even this person. No matter your take on either individual, the message is clear. People are seldom willing to die for those who contribute much to this world. We are seldom willing to take their place because we, we tend to be like, man, I, I would die for them. But at the moment that push comes to shove, we're like, well... And so what's, what's Paul doing? He's, he's kind of putting the ball and he's setting it on the tee here. 
Because he's showing us our true character. He's showing us our true nature. We wouldn't die for a righteous person. We might possibly die for a really awesome person. He's showing us our nature here. That's why this next word is so encouraging. If there weren't kids in here, I would say something. It's the biggest in the Bible. This next word. But. But. Here's human nature. We, we, we won't sacrifice ourselves at, at a high degree. We aren't willing to do it for good people. We're not willing to do it for awesome people. But. But. Say it with me. But. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But, what do we see here? The greatness of God's love is displayed in the cost of it. The greatness of God's love is displayed in the cost of it. God's love extends past our evil. God's love extends past human nature. God did not merely say he loved sinners. He acted on their behalf by putting forward Christ in their place. He became their propitiation. He became their propitiation. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He took our place. Jesus willingly gave himself up, paying a price we cannot comprehend. Jesus would leave heaven. He would live a sinless life. He would be betrayed. He would be abandoned. He would be tortured. He would endure the Father's wrath in place of those who deserve it. We can never lose sight of the fact that He put on display His love for us. We so often fail to see the full weight of of this love. The pain is so much deeper than the beating he took by the cat of nine tails. 39 times. Being whipped on his back. Marred beyond recognition as the scriptures reveal to us. Hit over and over. And the pain is deeper than just that or the, the three nails that pierce his body. Nailing him to the tree. On the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of all of the sins of the world. He was punished as if he himself had carried out every heinous act that the world had ever done. I want you here, right now, to hear that he did it willingly. Every horrible thing that you've ever done, he did it willingly for that. He stayed when he could have fled. 
He endured when he could have smited his oppressors. He did it for his oppressors. I want you to think about the Roman soldiers who have stripped him naked. It's not beautiful like the Sunday school picture that you've seen on the flannel graph your whole life. Jesus was completely naked. Humiliated for all to see, for his mom to see. And as, the, as, as what the historians have taught us, Jesus wasn't, as the picture shows, he isn't some um, up-in-the-air cross. No, the Romans would crucify people as a, way, as a way to make sure that their subjects would follow and listen to them. They crucified people at eye level. At eye level. So that when, when a person was on the precipice of death, you could look them in the eyes. Naked, eye to eye with his oppressors. And they're spitting and they're reviling him. And all the while he is doing it for them. For them. For them. The greatness of God's love is displayed our unworthiness of it. The greatness of God's love is displayed in our unworthiness of it. God's love is uncommon. Because Christ didn't die to save good people because there is no good people. There is not one. Christ died for his enemies, for people who did not deserve to be saved. I want you to hear that. You don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. There is no one who deserves, yet he still did it. Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He demonstrated the full love of God the Father by becoming the curse of sin and death that we would have everlasting life. I listened to an old sermon from Billy Graham this week. And in it, it's in the 50s, and so he, he isn't explicit because the, the time and the nature of the people he's talking to, it, it really isn't a time to, to really say some of the things that I felt like Billy wanted to convey. But he, he says to the crowd, I want you to think about the worst thing you've ever done. And then I want you to think about the worst thing that's ever been done to you or the worst thing that's ever been done to someone you do know. And I want you to then think about the fact that Jesus was a substitutionary, he, he was a substitutionary atonement, meaning that he took the place of that worst thing that's ever happened for the worst person that's ever lived. He took the place of those very people and he took the punishment from God the Father, who is the great avenger. And he did it for all who would call upon him Lord I want you to think about how uncommon that love is that the greatness of God's love is displayed in our 
unworthiness of it. We, man, we don't deserve it. I want you to look back at this verse. Pull up verse 8 for me. Notice that it says shows. Or maybe maybe the, the, the scripture, the translation you have in front of you, maybe it says demonstrates. That God shows or God demonstrates. I want to point out that this is present tense. I, w- I want to point out that this is present tense both here in the English and in the Greek. And died is past tense. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The present tense implies that this demonstration or this demonstrating is ongoing. It is an ongoing act that keeps happening today. That this demonstration of God's love will continue into tomorrow. That this demonstration of God's love is going to happen this week when you royally mess up. That the demonstration of God's love cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be extinguished. The demonstration of God's love is continuous for you over and over and over. Now we can celebrate that. God's love is eternal. And the past tense there died implies that the death of Christ happened once and for all and it will not be repeated. As 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What has Christ done on the cross? He has went to the depths of hell to rescue us. He has pulled us up, our lifeless, deathless body. He has pulled it up unto himself, and he has taken it to the Father so that we would have access. And he is continually, through the process of sanctification, saving us and making us more mature day by day, dragging us as we hold on with our talents, as we kick and fight against us, dragging us to the Father. That is uncommon love. That He shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is finished. The sacrifice is once for all, it is finished, as he says on the cross to Telestai. The Christ, the perfect, the unblemished one, has taken the place of the sinner, the highest value, has given himself for those who spit upon him, for revile him, that they might have everlasting life. So man, what, what do we do with this text? How do we wrestle with this text? What does this text invoke? Or, or what are we called to do because of this text? The number one thing that, man, comes to my mind 
is that we are to use it when we find ourselves doubting. We are to to use this text as an amplifier to our soul. We are to use this text into the deepest, darkest annals of our mind and to say, my God loves you. My God has paid the price for me. My God has redeemed me from the curse of sin and death. I am new. I am redeemed. I am not a sinner anymore, but I am a saint who has been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. On this particular topic, Tim Keller says this, Paul is saying, you can know objectively and beyond all doubt that God loves you. Even if your feelings or the appearance of your life circumstances might be prompting you to wonder. Paul writes to these churches, in the epistle letters in the New Testament. And he's constantly reminding them of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus. He's constantly pointing them back to the gospel. Why is he constantly pointing them back to the gospel? Because it is our grounding point facing spiritual persecution and spiritual doubting. The gospel teaches us that we are helpless without hope, but that God intervened in our mess and extended his hand to us through the blood of Jesus on the cross. The gospel reminds us that we did nothing to earn it, that he who drew, it was he who drew our hearts to him. It was the Holy Spirit who took up residence inside of us, and it will be God the Father who opens the seal on our souls on the day of redemption. Paul reminds the early church to embrace the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the great reorienter. That when we get discombobulated, When we can't seem to find our perfect north, when we can't seem to get our direction, that the gospel orients us and sets us back pointed towards Jesus. That the gospel allows us to soak in the goodness of his grace. That the gospel is a weapon that we are to use against ourselves and for ourselves. It is the weapon of our warfare. It is the sword of truth to defeat Satan. The gospel cannot be forgotten. What's another way? Pastor, what's another practical thing that I can do from these three verses? What's another practical thing that I can wrestle with? What are we called to do because of it? We're called to move toward reconciliation we're called to move toward reconciliation man if there's one thing I want you to hear today man oh man Christians need to hear this right here our God is a God that moves towards reconciliation therefore we too should move towards reconciliation 
I want you to notice that God moves towards reconciliation while we were still sinners, while we were opposed to him, while we hated him, while every fiber of us wanted our sin and deserved death. Yet God in his mercy moves towards us in that season. I want to tell you the chances are there's someone who has wronged you. There is someone who has betrayed you. There is someone who has done something potentially heinous to you. And I want to ask you, have you moved towards reconciliation with them? Have you moved towards forgiveness on behalf of them even before they have asked for it? Have you extended mercy in spite of their spitting, in spite of their reviling of you? Have you extended mercy even when they're casting rumors about you in the community to your friends, to your family? Have you extended mercy? Our God is a God of reconciliation. We, as Christ followers, as disciples of Jesus, should be a people of continual reconciliation. I want to tell you, there are no lost causes. There are none that are too far gone. There is no one that you can't forgive. I want to tell you if, you, if, if you say today, if in your heart of hearts you say, I can't forgive that person, I'll never be able to forgive them. I want to tell you, then the peace of God does not live in your heart. That's not me saying that's what the scriptures say. The scriptures say, if you can't forgive your brother, then I can't forgive you. So you need to to move your heart today. Your heart needs to be quickened. It needs to be molded. It needs to be pushed forward towards reconciliation. Because the gospel calls us to die to ourselves. To die to us being the driver. ransomed or redeemed by the gospel our relationship with the world should reflect his life and death lastly how do we practically wrestle with this text what are we called to do with it actively share the love of God man, if, 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 if there's something that should spur you to go out today and to have gospel conversations with people and to tell people about the good news of Jesus, man, this is it. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took our place. I'm not saying, hey, 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 just go invite them to church. That's great. We want you to do that. We really, really want you to invite people to church. But God is calling you to be his messenger because the reality is you have the key to opening doors that I don't. You have the keys to opening doors that the other pastors in this church do not. You have life experiences that we don't. You have personal relationships with people who they will allow you they will allow you to begin to have those conversations. This should invoke a response from us. So I ask you, when was the last gospel conversation you had? When was the last time you opened the door of your life to someone in your life to tell them about the good news of Jesus? To tell them of the redeeming work on the cross to tell them that Christ took their place. 
saying, I ask you to wrestle with those three things this morning, to, to take this Romans 5, 8 and to, and, to, and to commit it to memory so that you remember the present tense that he is constantly moving towards you in love. seasons of doubting and that you would be invoked that you would be driven that you would be person of reconciliation in your life that you would offer forgiveness constantly and that you would share the good news of the gospel now I want to ask do you know the great hope we talked about this do you know the son of God Jesus of Nazareth who came and lived a perfect and sinless life he was convicted of crimes that he had never committed do you know him as Lord I want to tell you if you don't you're in a safe place to respond to the gospel today you're in a safe place to respond to the good news the scriptures reveal to us that all we need to do is confess with our mouth believe in our heart that Christ has died on our behalf and we can be saved and that in that confession there is this great transfer the theological word for it is imputation that in this gospel in this good news we have this transfer of where Christ takes our sins on himself where he has already done it on the cross but once we confess Jesus as Lord once we, once we submit to his lordship in our lives we're given his righteousness we quote this scripture all the time 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake God the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So I want to tell you today, if you don't know Jesus, I encourage you, I implore you, I beckon you to turn your life to 